it was honestly a mess <laughs> like kind of an aggressive scary mess i would say like there was a lot of wheel touching there was a lot of handlebars getting caught there was a, a few snips and snaps at each other so i think it was a lot of mental energy honestly mm-hmm. just like i remember my hands feeling kind of numb and i was like oh i've just been gripping the bars so aggressively yeah. <laughs> i had to apologize to some gals i was like i'm sorry I just really it was yeah feeling intense and they're like no i totally said something to someone else also like we were all like just fired up it's showtime everybody showtime you've been living in a dream world neo this is the world as it exists today life moves pretty fast you don't stop and look around once in a while you could miss it talking about practice. Hey Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is The Adventure Stash with Pace and McCalvin. Hello everyone, welcome back to another Grand Prix recap episode. Round five of the Lifetime Grand Prix Schwamigan 40 was this past weekend. And it was as good as ever. This has been one of my all-time favorite events every year. I attended it in, I think, 17 and 18 and was lucky enough to take the win those two years. Um, in the last couple of years, the pointy end of this race has transformed a lot. Uh, the depth of field is really second to none at this point here in the States. But the heart and soul of the event, the thousands of non-pro racers that take on the challenge, none of that has changed. It is as electric as ever. It is so cool to come thundering into the finish straight there and have what seemed like thousands of, of spectators and just the, the energy and the enthusiasm in that part of the country is really uh, pretty second to none. And I talked to Betsy about that a good bit. We kick things off with that section of our recap episodes uh, where she and I kind of ping pong ideas and observations back and forth. Um, I guess that comes after your sound bites. Thank you so much for sending all of those in all of y'all that partook in this event and send in uh, your impressions and memories. Following my conversation with Betsy, we'll transition to a quick field report from Ellen Campbell, who of course is in the Women's Grand Prix and has been doing an awesome job the last couple of recap episodes, giving us some great context into the women's race. And then we'll do a little bit of power file analysis to uh, wrap up this recap episode. Uh, Before diving into all of that, I want to say a big thank you to Epic Rides and their 24 Hours in the Old Pueblo presented by Tucson Medical Center for supporting today's episode. Registration opens Sunday, October 1st at 6 a.m. And it is important to note that this race sells out in about an hour every single year. The course, also known as the Sonoran Single Track Sensation, is a 16 plus mile loop with 1,200 feet of climbing. Um, It's very rider friendly. And that said, it's lined with cactus. So the faster you go, the more technical it becomes. The venue, also known as 24-Hour Town, is home to 4,000 people for three-plus days, completely remote and 100% camping-based. It lends itself to being a -a one-of-a-kind experience. Epic Rides has been accused by the media of throwing a party that happened to have a mountain bike race nearby. Um, You know, probably isn't untrue. I would say the media isn't wrong in that regard from what I've heard about 24 hours in the old Pueblo. Sort of like Burning Man for mountain bikes is what I gather. Tighten your headset, loosen your mindset, 
because 24 Hours in the World Pueblo is about to begin. Like I said, Sunday, October 1st at 6 a.m., registration opens. You can go to epicrides.com to put together your team, register, get more information. Um, It's on my bucket list, and I certainly think it should be on yours as well. Epicrides.com. I also want to give uh, Lifetime Events a shout out for making these recap episodes possible. They have awesome events, as you know. Uh, I do a lot of them each and every year at this point with the Grand Prix. There's one I'm going to be adding this fall that's not part of the Grand Prix called the Little Sugar Mountain Bike Classic 100K Mountain Bike Race in Bentonville, Arkansas. If you're interested in any of uh, Lifetime's events, you can go to my.lifetime.life slash athletic dash events to learn more. All right, let's kick off this episode with the soundbite section. Uh, 1UP USA is our official partner for this section of the episode. They came to me a couple of races ago and said, you know what, we just absolutely love hearing from all the non-pro racers and their experiences, and we want to support that section of those recap episodes specifically. I said, that is awesome. I really appreciate that you acknowledge uh, that section. It's one of my favorites as well. So shout out 1UP USA. Make the best bike racks in the biz. Uh, we're a huge fan of their Super Duty racks, um, as well as the Rack Attach uh, as a great accessory. Um, so go check out all of their sweet products at oneup-usa.com. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll catch you after the show. Hey, Payson, this is Bob from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, not too far from Hayward, where we just did the Shawamigan 40. I believe that was my 25th Shawamigan 40 race. I don't really call it a race anymore, I call it a ride. But all in all, the day went pretty well. The new course was a bit challenging. Uh, The climbing is always tough there, but uh, I managed to climb almost all the hills and use the downhills to gain some momentum and that, that made the day go pretty well. Did of course have a little cramping toward the end in the legs, but uh, made it through and enjoyed the rest of the afternoon. Did get a chance to see the men finish the pro race. It's pretty amazing what you guys can do. My name is Cooper Kuzlin. I'm from Bemidji, Minnesota, and I figured I'd take the chance to share a quick recap of my race. Uh, my race went pretty well. I did the full 40, and, well, I didn't reach some goals I had, but it was all super fun and dope, and that's all that matters in the end. My high was obviously seeing all the LTGP pros out there, but also starting and finishing super strong. Most years, I usually fall to cramps towards the end, but this year I managed to push through them, which was pretty awesome. My low was running without a back break. It was kind of janky, but it made it a little more interesting. Next up, I'm looking forward to the Entombed Race in Grand Forks, North Dakota, where I'll be participating in the 12-hour marathon-style race. Uh, Last year, I pulled off 100 miles, so excited to see what I can do this year. One more thing, I'd like to thank you, Payson, for being a huge inspiration to me throughout my journey through the sports and competition world. It was a crazy opportunity getting to see you out there, and I wish you the best out there this season. This is Jamie from Waukesha, Wisconsin. My high and low point was my Camelback backpack, which, unknown to me at the time, had a slightly disconnected hose to the bladder. No water coming out of it whatsoever. Race starts were off. I was moving up the field pretty well. I had one bottle on my bike, so I felt like I was okay if I could just get to the mile 18 age station where my wife had a fresh bottle for me. So I get to the aid station and she's not there. Apparently she was having phone trouble and got lost, so she goes into this local bar to ask for help. 
So I'm riding through the aid station. I'm weighing my options of when I should stop and what I should do. And all of a sudden I hear my name and I was like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> there she is. So that was my high point of getting that fresh bottle. Next up is a 22 mile XC race in Eagle, Wisconsin, which is called the Fall Color Festival. Yeah, this is Garrick Valverde with the Steve Tilford Foundation. And I, I wanna share actually my teammates, Shad Smith's story in the amateur race. Shad crashed within the first three miles. There was a, a massive pileup on the highway leading into the first major climb. Shad was one of the first few riders to go down, just a touch of handlebars, I believe caused it. And it's one of those crashes where uh, you know he's gonna be pretty hurt, but he's gonna survive it. Um, but certainly I didn't think he'd be finishing the race. He uh, lost a lot of skin, jersey kind of hanging off, bike totally destroyed, not really rideable. He limped the bike back to the start where we had a van parked, drove that van back to our cabin, about a 25 minute drive, took a shower, used one of the large tubes of Neosporin, put it all over his wounds, put a new kit on, took a B-bike that we had there at the cabin, robbed it of, of everything that he could to get his, his bike working again. He drove back to uh, actually the Walmart parking lot, which is really near to where the crash happened. This is about two hours have gone by and restarted the race. You know, when I finished, it's the first thing I, I asked our, our team is, you know, have you heard from Shad? They hadn't heard a single thing. Uh, we checked with the local uh, medical staff. They hadn't heard from them. We checked all the local hospitals and they hadn't had someone check in under uh, that name. So we didn't know where Shad was. And then as the hours progressed, we saw him passing through the chips and he was actually moving at a, at a really fast pace, close to the winner's pace. He looked pissed as we thought he would be, um, bloodied up, knuckles um, pretty much ripped up, but still standing. Of course, when he finished, we wanted his side of it and uh, especially just what the heck he was thinking to, to not call it quits. And top of his mind was our, our late teammate, Steve Tilford, which of course is uh, what our foundation and the team is based around and his legacy and, and Steve was a lot of things but he was not a, a quitter and and Chad was thinking about Steve and how you know he had seen him as a teammate of his over the years you know torn up pretty much head to toe and and still you know, patching himself up and racing the next day and uh, Steve wouldn't have quit and Steve would have done anything to even just be in that race uh, today so uh, that's Chad's story and uh, he finished the race banged up. We got a lot of photos we could share with y'all. Uh, thanks for listening. Hello, Betsy. Hello again. <laughs> we'll say hello in the presence of the listeners. <laughs> hello. Um, it's good to be doing this again. Um, we have five Grand Prix down. Jeez. <laughs> I, I guess it's that time of year. Five Grand Prix down. Two to go. Two more of these recap episodes. Although we were just talking before we started recording about maybe doing a world's recap if we can figure out who would throw us a little funding to make it happen. But um, you had a question about nationals, I think, which I haven't really talked about that much. Yeah, I, you know, I, I tend to go to a lot of events. I have historically gone to a lot of events. I didn't go to nationals, nor did I go to Schwamigan. So sometimes you know, for me to like get a pulse on things, I rely on you guys. And 
what you post on social media to sort of, yeah, like get a little bit of a vibe check. And what I was about to say to you is that I think it was interesting after nationals, um, there was none of the, I don't know how to say it, maybe like energy. <laughs> and, and this isn't like good or bad energy. It's really just energy. There was sort of no, it was just sort of like, poof, like we went, we did it. It was fast, tactical X, Y, Z. This is who won. But there wasn't a lot of like post-raced euphoria and ex sort of extended like perseverating, which you see with a lot of these events. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's good or bad. Honestly, I think that's really illustrative of just what kind of event it was. Mm -hmm. um, but you were there. You can give me a little more insight. Whereas Schwamigan, there's a lot of like stoke. Um, yeah. in, in the days after that race. Um, and it's not to say that there was negativity after gravel, na gravel nationals. It wasn't negative. It was more of an absence. Mm, of, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. I think some of it, some of what you sensed is maybe due to the fact that it was a, a title ship race. And by the very nature of that, the majority of the people going there are going to have results either at the front of their mind or in the back of their mind. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these other big gravel events or mass participation, mass participation mountain bike events, the people that have chasing result at the front of their minds is a much smaller percentage of the entire field. And so I have never been to a gravel race that felt like gravel nationals. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. Um, I recognized very few people, which was interesting. Mm. Just it's, like milling about and. Well, there was very little milling about going on period. Um, it, from what I could tell, there wasn't really an expo, uh, right. but um, you know, usually at, at this point there's, there are a certain number of, non pros who I've just become friendly with because they'll be at mid South and then they'll maybe do unbound one year. And then the next year they'll, you know, get off work to go to Schwam again. And just because they're really friendly and always make a point of coming up to say, Hey, at the races, I get to know them a little bit and I know them on a first name basis. I didn't see a single one of those people at right. nationals. Um, for me personally, it, to an extent, these races always have an element of work feel. Right. But nationals literally felt like going to the office and like, yeah, <laughs> you know, just there was a task, executed the task, went home. <laughs> it was like going to the office without the water cooler, which you frequently <laughs> yeah, exactly. are stopped at and hanging out by. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think... Um, a lot of people listening to that might think, well, that sounds not fun. And that sounds, mm -hmm. um, negative and it was very different, but also, you know, there were some things like it's, it's all about, I think where the race organizers are putting their time and energy and resources. And so there were a lot of things at nationals, um, that were pretty cool, like, yeah. um, course marshals at every significant road crossing. Um, trying to think of another example. Uh, 
reliable time checks from mm. a lead moto who would wait, let us know how big a gap we had on the group behind, and then you know accelerate forward and tell us down to the second what the time gap was like. Um, you never get that at Unbound. So it felt like a more controlled environment for sure. It felt kind of like a road race. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also felt historic. I mean, there was definitely a certain feel when we were standing in this amphitheater area and, you know, there are all these age group categories getting their national champs jerseys. And then, you know, Lauren Stevens got up and got her national champs jersey and we went up and stood on the podium and Keegan got his national champs jersey. It definitely had a, a, a feel of history. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, we could we could probably go on about it. Um, and there will be more to talk about with Worlds too, which you're going to. And um, But yeah, I, I think it's just part of now, it's sort of the ongoing narrative with gravel is how different events coexist um, and whether or not people are sort of, um, yeah, what, I guess what people's tolerance is for that, for having a national championship event and, you know, probably this not being the first nor last time we see USA cycling, um, being more involved in gravel moving forward. Yeah. Why didn't you go to Schwamigan? That's not meant to sound like accusatory. I'm just curious. It's so funny because this, I had the same exact thing happen last year where it's like, you know, I, it's a, it's like a hard time of year to motivate leaving. And yet after the race, I'm like, damn it. If there's one race I should have gone to this year, it's that one. And I was thinking about this before we jumped on, like, I mean, you're a little bit of an exception, but like, if this race weren't in the Grand Prix, I don't think three quarters of the field would ever have gone to it, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's, and so yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm ashamed of myself. I should have gone this year. Um, you shouldn't be ashamed though, because you're, you set your own standard. Like the <laughs> fact that you not going to an event is out of the ordinary is highly unusual in and of itself. You know, when you compare yeah. to, to your peers and fellow folks who cover this sport, like there's very few people that go to basically all the events and that's what you do. Um, which is amazing. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. But I did have, you know, a little bit of FOMO because I could see you guys having a lot of fun, despite the fact that I think most everyone sort of zips in and zips out, um, based on both like the time of year and the location. It's just not a place like Leadville where you're like hanging out for the week or, mm-hmm. um, but it seems like a real like moment in time where it's just really cool for those 48 or 72 hours. Um, have you been to Schwamigan yet? No. Yeah. It's and unreal. I look, yeah. I, mean, I was looking back at this preview I wrote last year and it was like, yeah, it's, it's history. Like it's, it's historic and seems really special. Yeah. I think you, you should definitely race it sometime. Um, just because oh. it is a historic event and it's pretty unusual mountain biking, you know, as far as mountain right. bike races go, but the scene up there is just unreal Betsy. Like, I don't know if you saw some of the photos of the number of people lining the finish straight. I I mean, I'm bad at estimating numbers of people, but hundreds upon hundreds of people, if not, you know, over you know, into the thousands of 
folks welcoming in the pro finish. And then once we did finish and you're exiting, you know, the, the finish shoot, there's just like this gauntlet of eight to 16 year olds with their helmets out. And, you know, I had one kid who literally had like a white piece of printer paper and a pencil. And I was just like, this is incredible. Like, I wish I had something to give you right now. That wasn't just a white piece of printer paper uh, with my name penciled, but just the passion up there is unbelievable. Um, It's so cool. And you're right. It doesn't, I think partly because of the time of year and also because it's pretty rural, like people don't mill around the expo quite as much as, um, you know, Unbound or, or Leadville, but it's not that far off. I feel like it's a pretty healthy expo at this point. Um, and yeah, if there's one thing that I just always am blown away by in regards to that event is just the, the enthusiasm of people that ride bikes in that area. It's really amazing. Yeah, it's cool. I was like, just to the sort of, um, honoring tradition, like 40 years is a long Mm. time to have a bike race. I was trying to think of something out West that's like that. And I couldn't, I mean, I'm sure there are, but um, like there's, there's gotta be a sense of real pride and ownership that comes with that. Um, but I mean, if you feel like there were hundreds of people in the finish shoot, there's nothing near that at, at Leadville. I mean, no, not even unbound. Like, no, no, no. I, I think there were, yeah. I mean, it might be the most well attended finish line fan wise of any so event cool. in the States at this point. I mean, it was, it was really amazing. Um, so anyway, that was really cool. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if lifetime keeps that one in the mix, you know, I sure hope to, so. starting to dig into those next year stories and like, um, yeah, it seems like it's really beloved and it's really different for you guys too. Like this, the, the commentary around like how nice it was to race for two hours instead of six or eight or 10, um, but I have a feeling that could be one that gets, you know, shelved for a few years before brought back or something. We'll see. But um, it doesn't need us is the thing, which is why it might be the one mm-hmm. that gets shelved. Mm-hmm. Um, and by us, I mean the Grand Prix pros. Right, right, right. right. It's such yep. a dang healthy event from what I can right. tell that I don't know. I would go anyway, though. I would. Well, that's the thing. I wish it for you guys that it yeah. would stay because it seems like everybody has a great time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just beautiful. Fall colors. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. What else are you curious about in regards to the the weekend or what other observations did you have? I sent you a few just kind of general talking points, but did you have anything on your mind that you wanted to discuss? Um, I mean, I just think I sort of, have been thinking about Schwamigan a little more globally in terms of in the series. And like we've been saying how different it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just seems like (laughs) it's so interesting to me after these races, it seems like without necessarily talking to each other or coordinating what you guys are going to say, you often say very similar things. Yeah. And that's across the men's field, the women's field. Um, And it's, it's cool to see, I think, You know, it just shows that you guys are really on the same page. I think it also shows um, it's like it's it shows a humanness. Like a lot of people are like, it was nice to have a two hour race. Like people were a lot of people were pretty battered after the 
Leadville steamboat um, duo. And Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I just think it's interesting with the series and thinking about it moving forward and also just thinking about like this sport that you guys are all sort of pioneering, um, which is this hybrid thing, little mountain biking, gravel, um, you know, what, what it will continue to look like and what races people like and what races people don't like, but it doesn't matter because here's this <laughs> series that is sort of calling the shots for now. Yeah. Um, so other than that, I mean, it just looked like a lot of fun and it's like great to see you guys like out there on a short course and, um, you brought up some specific stuff we can talk about, like a 14 rider sprint, um, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty crazy. We also had two people win who are not the two people who have been winning True. most of these races. So that's yeah. certainly worth talking about. Yeah. Um, a couple things in regards to just how different this race is to, to participate in versus a lot of the other ones in the Grand Prix. Um, as I was getting my nutrition together the day before, I literally filled one bottle yeah. and I was like, wait a sec, this can't be right. Like I literally right. Right. was uncertain because it seemed impossible, but I started with one tall bottle on my bike that I drank about a third of during warm up, yeah. And then the second two thirds were perfect for the first 45 minutes of the race. And then I got to the aid station. I took another tall bottle and it was the perfect amount for the rest of the race. Um, wow. So that was unique. Uh, There has been a lot of banter just about the style race. And I thought Brendan Johnston put it best. He said he thought it felt like a 60 kilometer um, start loop at a world cup, which Mm. was pretty spot on. I mean, it was just sort of constant battling for position. And at first it's stressful. And then you just kind of relax into that reality and it gets really fun. Like just reading the terrain, figuring out where yeah. you can go off of the main track and pass a few people, thinking ahead towards, you know, the next section of the course that hopefully, you know, you remembered correctly and recon and how's that going to affect the the dynamic of the race. And then as the race wore on, because there's this one uh, major climb that's about two, two and a half minutes called Fire Tower Hill. Yeah. That's legitimately hard. It's steep. Yeah. It's kind of stair-steppy, but the the parts that are up are like 12 plus percent. can be a little greasy, um, and it's narrow, so it really stretches out there. And this was my fourth year doing the race, um, and the three previous years, over the top of Fire Tower, we'd never had more than four people in the group. Oh, wow. And this year, I think we had six going over the top, and I looked over to Alexi and said, this is more like it, you know, because we had a group of like 20 plus Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't respond and I wasn't sure if he didn't hear me or he like disagreed with my assessment. <laughs> I think he potentially disagreed with my assessment and rightfully so, because within half a mile later, our group was 12 again. And then yeah. a couple more stragglers and a couple things there. One, the climb came a bit earlier in the course than it typically does, but also everyone's just better. Everyone's just stronger. Right. And so more That's people. That's what I was going to say. It's yeah. like this. This is just more testament to how strong you guys are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and- realizing that, like, in recon, you think the more difficult finish than they've had in the past will maybe break it up. And I had a couple climbs that I had in the back of my mind for attacking. And on one of them, I remember thinking, 
shoot, we're at the top. Like, I, I wanted to attack into this, but we're going so fast that I'm losing track of where we are on the course and the climbs are so much shorter at mm-hmm. race speed than you think they're going to be. And so I'm sure everyone else was thinking the same thing, but I was just racking my brain about like, how are we going to break up this group? Like these 14 people aren't going anywhere. Like everyone here looks comfortable. Everyone here is in control. Is this really going to be a 14 person sprint? And what does that even mean? How do you sprint with 13 other people? Like how do you, how does it shake out? Um, so it was really exciting. And then just coming into that finish shoot with, you know, the hundreds or thousand plus fans, whatever it was, was a a ton of energy. And then the last thing I would add that was very different was having this massive, um, you know, endorphin rush and just adrenaline rush of the finish coming across the finish line. And all of a sudden there's just 14 of you packed into this little finish area and you've all just finished at the exact same time. And everyone kind of whipped their bikes onto the ground and was just like high-fiving and <laughs> hugging. And I think I gave Alexi a punch in the shoulder that was maybe like 10% too hard. Cause I was so fired up. Um, and I was like, we have energy to like jump around and like fool yeah, around right, right now and be right, stoked right. rather than slumping over our bikes and what, and like, having to gather ourselves for five minutes before we can even say hi to our significant other. Um, It felt like, you know, when you watch rampage or something and they finish their run and they like throw their bike or downhill run, they throw their bike and there's all this adrenaline and raw, raw energy. So that was very different for sure. Yeah. Just as you're describing that, it it just makes me think of like kids, like you were like, yeah, you know, a bunch of kids each other and then just like, woo. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great uh, so way what, to put it. What does a 14 rider sprint look like? Like, and nobody crashed. It was all, everyone came across. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in kind of typical fa- fashion, there were a couple of amateur racer stragglers in the finish shoot. Oh, right. right. Um, so that was a little sketchy. I was thinking about coming or trying to come around Cole. I don't think I would have been able to, but it was, I was thinking about trying to come around Cole uh, and there was a rider that he was, that was not in our race that he was passing. Mm-hmm. And basically that amateur rider completely, uh, without realizing it, you know, closed the door on mm-hmm. any sort of potential pass. The moto also potentially yeah. wasn't super experienced. Uh, yeah. And I don't think it affected the sprint. It just didn't look great. And I think if anything, it might've slowed Alexi down a little bit because he had to pass the moto like right on Mm -hmm. the line. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't ideal. Um, But it was also, it should be noted a really weird sprint because it's, you're basically like sprinting across a football field, but it's a good like three quarters of a mile long. And it's this gradual grind up and then gradual down. And one thing that I've, I've always appreciated about Alexi, but especially this year is just um, how sharp he seems to be in really hectic moments mm-hmm. and like his racing instinct. And so he, I don't know how he had the presence of mind for this, but he seemed really focused on just winning the sprint to the descent, to the slight descent. Cause I think he knew that the speed was going to be so high that if he got in front early like did a really early sprint. It was very unlikely that anyone could come around him. And that's exactly what happened. I felt amazing uh, and 
and felt like I could have put a lot more power down, but got geared out. Um, so you, you watched that happen. So as you're like part of this, mm -hmm. you were watching that happen as well. Well, you feel it. So I actually, I didn't do a great, you, you, and when you feel it, I mean like out of the corner of your eye, mm, right. you, you see it happening. Yeah. Um, and I didn't do a great job of positioning, but I figured there was enough time to sort that out. And then all of a sudden I realized like the speed was accelerating sooner than I thought. And so I actually just looked for Matt Beer's wheel because one, he puts off a huge draft. I mm -hmm. knew he was going to be strong in the sprint. And also mm -hmm. he's such a big diesel motor that he's kind of like the perfect lead out guy because he's not going to do like a big snap acceleration it's going to be like a big powerful surge that you can actually stay in the draft of so he really slingshotted me up i went off i came off his wheel and as mm -hmm. i was coming off of his wheel i saw that alexi was already way over to the left probably with like six or eight bike lengths on me totally in the wind and i thought that i'd timed it perfectly um and the fact that Alexi was already like fully committed to his own effort, I was like, whoa, that was bold. And also I think the right thing to do. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but it is a feel thing. And it's interesting too, how like in a moment like that, it's, it's such a short effort and you never really know how everyone's feeling, but the speed at which some people move forward and other people drop back is really impressive. Um, yeah. Like Andrew Lesperance, for example, I really expected to have a strong sprint and he just had no power in the legs on for the sprint and just like was going backwards almost the same speed as Alexi was accelerating, it seemed like. And yeah, it's a tumultuous thing. You just sort of have to like let go a little bit, feel the riders moving around you, think about going forward as fast as you can while also trying not to cross wheels or anything. <laughs> you train for these sprint finishes? They seem to happen enough that you may. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that actually Dennis really emphasized this year was because mm -hmm. he knew these races were going to be getting a lot more tight, I think, yep. just based yep. on the depth of field. And so he kind of talked to us at the beginning of the year and was like, look, guys, if there are probably going to be four or five races this year where the difference between three to seven spots could be decided in a sprint. And that's a lot of points in the Grand Prix. So right, right. we we worked on sprinting this year, but then also um, just doing weeknight group rides, like literally town line right. sprints. You get a sense for, you know, especially when you have like, you know, Quinn Simmons in town yeah. and, and really good yeah, riders. Exactly. You get a sense for how the, the flow of a sprint like that works for sure. Alexis's and um, Ruth's was very different, though. I don't know how much you picked up on in that regard. Not much. I mean, hopefully you can tell me a little bit, except that it was the two of them. And I, I did see like the, you know, the replay, but I, you mentioned that something like, was there something with a timing mat or mm -hmm. some confusion about which was the finish line? Yeah. 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 I think, so speaking of like being, you know, having some presence of mind during really chaotic finishes like that. Alexis just had this little microsecond of a mental error and she totally owned it. I mean, she didn't blame anybody, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was a timing mat and I, I don't know what the timing mat was meant for. And then I don't know, 50 or 75 meters later, there was the big finish arch with the branding on it and everything like that. So to me, it was a pretty obvious 
like the finish line was obvious, but she like bike through for this first timing mat. And when you bike through, you have to stop pedaling. And so she was maybe half a bike length ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows what would have happened? Like, I don't know whether Ruth was gaining on her or Alexis was coming around Ruth. Um, But you can see in the video, like Alexis is leading and then she just stops pedaling. Right. And Ruth gets her on the real finish line. (laughs) So bummer. I guess these things happen. Yeah. Bummer for Alexis and more so, I mean, I, I just bummed for Alexis cause she's, she's been real close a lot, um, this season. And I would imagine that that can get a little bit wearisome. Oh yeah. Um, which is what I said about Alexi too. Like, God, <laughs> yeah. I'm no pro athlete, but I can imagine that is quite frustrating. Yeah. 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 No, it's good to see. And also, you know, I have to give Keegan a shout out for, being so gracious at the finish line. I mean, he, um, I mean, he has bigger goals on the horizon, of course, and he mm-hmm. has the grand prix locked up, but like, he was totally fine finishing second at a race. It wasn't like, Oh, my streak ended, <laughs> you know? Um, and he and Alexi are buddies. So it was, it yeah. was all good, but anyway, um, what else? What's I jotted I jotted down a couple of notes just as we go into the last two rounds here in regards to the, how the overall is looking. Mm -hmm. And I chatted with Alexi about this a little bit after the race, actually. Um, Just how like you can try to draw conclusions about the leaderboard and who's on the way up and who's maybe drifting back a little bit. Right. But almost anything can happen you know, through the last race. Like, I think we learned that last year. But yeah. one thing that I did notice, I, I have no idea why this would be the case, but the men's top, let's call it top 15, 16, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is way more tightly packed than the women's. So overall, it seems like, there's more movement possible on the men's leaderboard than the women's leaderboard. I don't know why that. not how it was last year. I don't think Mm. think it was the opposite. Also there have been a lot and you can correct me if this isn't right, but it seems like this year more than last year, maybe there've been more DNF DNSs. Mm. Um, Yeah, definitely. Right. Like it just, almost everyone has like a DNF. I, I feel like I'm like going through this. I mean, obviously unbound was a huge DNF fest. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I feel like last year inaugural year, you know, it was like hit every race, like mm-hmm. be at every race and, um, you know, shit, Ruth, she didn't even, she didn't even start sea otter and mm. she DNF'd, um, Kansas. So, but she's third. Yeah. And she's she's third. But yeah, I'm wondering if maybe that could um account for some of the like what we're seeing. For sure. For sure. Um one so on the one thing I did make note of is on the men's side, I think two names that 
are outside the money right now, outside the top 10, but absolutely could move up based on the courses ahead mm-hmm. are Logan Owen and Alex Howes. They're 13th and 14th. Yeah. How about their results at Schwamigan? Like, solid. Pretty, yeah. Super solid. <laughs> yeah. And actually, Alexi, um, the way I keyed off of Matt Beers, Alexi keyed off of Alex. And so Alex apparently, without knowing it, I don't even, he may still not know it. Alex was uh, Alexi's chosen lead out man. (laughs) I'm curious to see how Alex finishes up the season, what Alex decides to do next year. Um, He's a bit elusive this year, I feel like, in terms of his, you know, goals, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, So I'll be curious about him. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, Logan Logan has 80 points. Uh, Coney Loser has 86. So, I mean, that's Not obviously only huge. a difference of six spots, yeah. right, which can right. easily happen over the course of two races. Yeah, um, and I, I, I chatted with Ryan Cross about this, and like he reminded me that the way the points structure is with the single point, like a lot can change. Mm-hmm. Um, so you make a really good point. There's also a lot of ties. Like on the women's yeah. side, Sarah, yep. Max, and Ellen Campbell both have 75 points. Um, and then it's just, it's super tight for the top. There's going to be mm-hmm. a crazy battle for the top three. Sophia says she has it locked up. She kind of quietly. She put, did say that. Yeah. Which, and, I mean, I trust her of all people that I trust to do that math perfectly. <laughs> She's right. the one. But right. that's not a big gap between her and Alexis, I guess. Even if Alexis were to win two rounds, she wouldn't make up the difference. Because I think in the same breath that Sophia said she had it locked up, like, I don't think she's coming to the rad. Yeah, Um, she, and neither is Keegan. Uh, They're both focusing on worlds. Right. Which I totally get. Right. So, yeah, that's, um, I'm with you though. Sophia would have this down to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of science but yeah um what else are you skipping the rad sorry are you skipping the rad i can't i can't make a another mistake oh, right. all year you're one of those people back against the wall yeah yeah <laughs> well way to climb back up there so i know you've got, yeah it's close you've got derby this week and are you racing in durango Yes, I'm lining up. I think I'm racing it hard. It's it's so tough. So with this world's thing, like I kept this kind of under wraps. My I kept my interest under wraps. To be totally honest, I would not have gone to nationals if it weren't for my interest in worlds. Yeah. My interest in worlds stemmed from my interest in doing a team sport. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To be totally honest, you know, Mm -hmm. we started kind of talking. We being Alexi. Brennan, uh, a few of us, Keegan, um, we just started talking about this mutual interest in having a team experience, Mm. particularly in light of how good we think Keegan is. Um, I think Alexi is probably the one that has the most experience in that environment. Um, And he's already, you know, we've exchanged some, some texts just about like, how do you go about getting your, you know, six or seven guys together in a melee of 180 people on a 30 mile 
paved flat road start before a tight, steep climb. Like how do we deliver Keegan to the bottom of that climb in a good position? You know, and that's where there is some intimidation about these various world tour pros that might just drop in and and just know how to navigate that. But the other thing is like, I've been thinking about how hectic the first 25 miles of unbound is how hectic the entire 40 miles of Schwamigan were like, we're not bad at positioning. Um, So it'll be a fun fact finding mission too, just to see Mm -hmm. in the future as the sport continues to grow overseas. um, Is that a role we want to take on? Like, do, do we want to, um, develop along with the globalization of the sport. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Very exciting. Wait, I know we're not, this is lifetime Grand Prix, but how, how early, I mean, you can't get over there that early. You race the rat on Saturday, you leaving Sunday. No. Um, I think it's important to, one thing I've learned over the years is especially with a, an effort as deep as rad is going to be, you know, yeah. it's, it's long, it's going to be upwards of six hours. Um, don't get on a plane right away. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'll go to the front range and just spin, spin it out on Monday, uh, spin it out on Sunday and Monday and then fly out Tuesday. Okay. Wait, is that true? Fly out Monday, arrive Tuesday. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then fly directly to Bentonville and do a four and a half hour mountain bike race. And then (laughs) six days later, a hundred mile gravel race. (laughs) Yep. It's going to be, yeah, there's a lot to look forward to coming up. Um, Lifetime Grand Prix and otherwise. Yep. Totally. Cool, Betsy. Um, Thank you. Any other thoughts or things you wanted to touch on? No, I don't think so. Um, To be honest, I'm just looking forward to coming down to your neighborhood and. Oh, yeah. You're coming to Derby. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Super psyched. So. I'm going to head down tomorrow and then ride out of Silverton Thursday, Friday, probably like overdo it, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's you know fleeting season. And then I'm doing the race with a girlfriend from Carbondale. So we're do the team, the team thing. Amazing. You should also come to Nicole's presentation on Friday night. If you're in town. Then. Oh, well, okay. You'll have to send me the details on that. Yeah, we'll do. Coolio. We'll see you in a few days. Sounds good. Thank you, Betsy. Ellen Campbell, our infield reporter. Uh, we are back from Schwamigan. Today is Thursday. Schwamigan was Saturday. We're both racing again day after tomorrow. <laughs> How does that feel, first of all? Even though it's a local race. Um, I'm excited because it's a local race. I'm tired because it's a race. <laughs> and yeah, mostly just excited to see everyone come and experience Durango trails. But yeah, part of me is kind of like, hmm, maybe I should just like ride it. But we all know once the gun goes off, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but we can try. Yeah. Yeah. I was joking with someone, Ray, we're recording in the house instead of the little studio. Cause Nicole's taking an exam. So Ray might, uh, add her voice now and then. <laughs> um, yeah, I was joking with someone earlier today about the fact that the Durango Derby this weekend is probably going to be about equal to a Grand Prix field in terms of competitiveness. There's <laughs> Not a, far off. There's a lot of people coming. At least the women's field keeps getting more and more stacked. Ruth Edwards, 
showed is really? showing up. Yes. Yeah. Nice. So she's here to give us a run for Speaking our money. Speaking of Schwamigan. Speaking of Schwamigan. Yeah. <clears throat> Michaela Thompson yep. just signed up, skipping the collegiate race. Dang. She'll be one to watch for this for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a deep field for a little local race that's going to hopefully be big. Evelyn's still doing it? Mm-hmm. Evelyn's coming. Cool. Sarah, myself, mm-hmm. some local badass chicks. Nice. Brittany, Cohen. She got some QOMs the other day, so on all, some of the segments in the race, so Uh-oh. I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Let's talk about Schwamigan. You Did you do this race last year? Yeah, of course. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how would you compare last year to this year just in broad strokes whoa um last year was definitely like a i think people knew what it was but didn't know what it was like didn't know what you're getting into like okay we, we know it's gonna be fast we know it, it's like a you know kind of not as technical but hard mountain bike race nonetheless and we know it's short and that's kind of all we knew there were some people that had done it before last year but not it was never that deep of a field. Like I'm pretty sure every year before 2022 had no more than 10 women in the start. Oh, wow. So that's like the biggest women's field they think, I think they've ever seen. So it was like kind of, yeah, like it was big fields. Um, and then this year was just, I think everyone knew it was going to be fast again, but it was, I don't know. It was kind of, we were hoping for the mud I was hoping for the mud. Some people were hoping for the mud. Um, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't, it didn't seem too different compared to last year in terms of, I just knew that it was going to hurt equal amounts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did the race play out for you? For me personally, it was um, pretty good. I was definitely disappointed at the end, but got a good warm up in. It's like one of those races, like, we actually have to warm up for all of these races, even the 100-mile ones. Um, yeah, because the starts are so fast. The now. starts are so hard. But this one, for sure, like a nice hour warm-up. Um, had a good start. And then there was, yeah, like kind of normal. It's like a big group for a while until the decisive, like a decisive mud or like narrower section. Um, for me, around the Fire Tower Hill, which I don't know mileage wise, maybe 25. Do mm-hmm. you know what mile that was at? Uh, it was barely over halfway. So yeah, 23 ish. Yeah. So something around that, I made a crucial mistake as in going into the, that in the back of our 20 person group, Yeah. which was my mistake because I wasn't paying attention to mileage and I was paying attention to the mud mileage and not the hill mileage so lesson learned um but yeah watched you know got stuck behind people and then my legs also happened to give out at the same time (laughs) and yeah and then was able to ride alone for a little bit and then finally um sarah max caught me Mm -hmm. and um catherine colin Mm-hmm. caught me and then Catherine and I rode in together and then she out sprinted me <laughs> and then I was bummed for a moment and by a moment I mean a few hours and now we're here yeah so yeah um the positioning in that race I think we all knew was going to be key but it was even more hectic in our race than I expected in terms of positioning and make or break did it yeah. I mean obviously 
a positioning error is is kind of what unhitched you from the lead group but leading up to that was it pretty hectic positioning wise also oh yeah it was honestly a mess <laughs> like kind of an aggressive scary mess I would say like it was like fighting tooth and nail to like get into like quote unquote single track that wasn't single track it was like Sarah and I were talking about this because like Kelsey Urban was there and she had been racing world cups and it felt like hectic like in terms of like you trying to get into like the single track first in a world cup but then there was no single track so then it was like okay let's use the whole road (laughs) and like I don't know there was a lot of wheel touching there was a lot of handlebars getting caught there was a a few snips and snaps at each other which Mm. was like so I think it was a lot of mental energy Mm -hmm. honestly just like I remember my hands feeling kind of numb and I was like oh I've just been gripping the bars so aggressively (laughs) Um, so yeah, it was a lot of fighting for positions, a lot of like, yeah, being aggressive. It was pretty aggressive, I would say. And then, yeah, I think by mile 18, like that second mud, like where there was a hill in the mud section, it was down to 20 girls and it was still so aggressive. It was crazy. Um, yeah. So positioning was super key. Yeah. It's funny you say that about death gripping your bars because I kind of had that experience with my shoulders Mm. and I would have to consciously remind myself to take a deep breath and just relax my shoulders down because they were just like creeping up next to my ears uh, from the tension. Um, Yeah. So what else do you have for us? What other observations or tidbits did you pick up from the race that you want to report? Yeah, mostly just like felt like a drag race, real... Like, I think the mud was not nearly as bad as last year. And um, there was definitely mud and it was definitely like a little slimy and you kind of had to be okay with that. I noticed like a lot of the front group was avoiding puddles, which personally bothered me. I mean, it's fair. Like, you don't want to go like headfirst into a puddle, but it like ripple effect, which made a lot of the people in the middle or the back of that group spend a ton of energy because it would yo-yo. So that was interesting. At one point, I kind of had a snarky moment and I was like, just, it's water. (laughs) Just ride through the water. (laughs) Maybe not my proudest moment, but. um, It's hard when, when you have hormones just coursing through your body from this fight or flight experience, it's really hard to be polite. (laughs) Yes. I was like, it's just water. And then I like, I had to apologize to some gals. I was like, I'm sorry. Just really was yeah feeling intense and they're like no I totally said something to someone else also like we were all like just fired up mm-hmm. and I think at the end of the day it was like everyone's fine and like for the most part it was like pretty cordial but there was definitely a few moments where we were like hooting and hollering at each other and I think <laughs> the just tensions were high yeah um but yeah it was it was definitely good similar similar to last year I mean the course was different so like I felt like last year it was definitely more decisive. And so the group got like spread out. Agreed. Fire tower. The group definitely got spread out a little bit more. Like the 20 gals broke up a little bit, but I know that a few came back and then a few got away. Like Ruth and Alexis got away. Um, But yeah, it wasn't as decisive as last year. So like when you all passed me like five miles, four miles from the finish or whatever that was, 
that was a big group. You all had Huge. like 15 or something yeah. guys with you. Yeah. It's kind of scary to be passed. Honestly, I was like, yeah. don't move, don't move. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I think I don't have a ton to say, but you know, some standout riders that I was kind of noticing if I was trying not to get crashed out. Um, Isabel King mm. had a really good day. Um, she stayed with the lead group until, yeah, like mile 19, 18 right there. Mm-hmm. And I know just talking with her and like hearing her Instagram post, like she was really happy with that. And, um, yeah, and she, she has done some hard work to be there and she was there. I love that you give, you're giving her a shout out. Cause I also read that post and it was simultaneously, you know, uplifting, but also kind of sad because she acknowledged some of the imposter syndrome of going up against so many really talented athletes and just that questioning of, you know, do I actually belong in this field? Should I have gotten a start spot in the Grand Prix? Like those, those were kind of the sentiments that she was talking about. And I was like, I need to go look at her results. Like I, cause she can be pretty hard on herself knowing, Mm -hmm. knowing her and sure enough, her results are solid. Yeah. But to have, um, a day where she felt like she was kind of on the front foot and like really participating at the front of the race is really cool. Yeah. She was definitely there and yeah, it it is exciting to see the front group get mixed up a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of like who's there or like to see a rider that like not necessarily isn't strong enough to be there, but just like maybe isn't, um, isn't at the front all the time. You know, like there's always, at least in the women's field, like I can count on like, four or five riders to like constantly be driving the force at the front. And then like riders like Maud at Schwamigan, she was crushing too. She, there's the only photos I have seen of the, the race of the women's race have been, um, you know, at the start. And then there's like a select few, like at the bridge before the feed zone, but Maud is there. She's on the front. And I'm mm. like, go girl. (laughs) She was beaming at the finish. I talked to her briefly and she was so stoked. She was so stoked. So it's like really cool to see, like, not that these riders can't be at the front, of course, but, um, it's really cool to see them like not only riding with the front group, but like charging to the front and like riding, literally riding on the front Mm -hmm. and taking Mm -hmm. charge of the pace. Um, yeah, it was those two riders I would say were standout for me again, it was really hard to like keep track of everyone when I was trying not to hit the deck (laughs) (laughs) or slide off or miss, you know, a crucial turn. Apparently like Emily Newsom got lost, which is a bummer. Yeah. Which is a real bummer. She was really strong last year at this race. Um, so I don't know, head down. You're really focused. Yeah. Fair. Go take a wrong turn. For sure. Yeah. That's really all I got. Let's see. What did you think of that finish shoot with all the fans? That was the most people I've seen. That was the most number of spectators I've seen at a U.S. race in a while. Yeah, that was great. The Wisconsin people are really nice. Um, Everyone's super welcoming, and they're just stoked. Like, I was sprinting for 19th place, and, um, yeah, they were cheering like I was sprinting for a win, which is, like, super cool. Yeah, that is cool. It's a good, good community up there. Did you chat with Ruth or Alexis after their kind of infamous finish? I, I, I talked with both of them, but I didn't, we didn't talk about the race Mm. really. I kind of talked with Ruth and she just was happy. She like really felt like just good about the atmosphere. It seemed like she just, you know, kind of was had sentiments about like just 
how it felt good to be around people that were like stoked on bikes and bike racing. And, um, yeah, I didn't really ask, uh, Alexis and I didn't really mm-hmm. get into the race too much. We were talking about gravel worlds a little bit more. So, <laughs> yeah. Do you have interest in that sort of thing? In gravel in the worlds? Future? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, it kind of depend. I didn't really pay too much attention this year because I thought it was going to be the same as last year mm-hmm. and that didn't really excite me, but yeah, I would be really interested in doing gravel worlds just for the experience of it mostly. For sure. We'll for see. sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Last, uh, thing I'd like to touch on is just how you're feeling heading into this last phase of the Ooh. year. It's been a long Grand Prix season. Yeah. Um, have you done all five rounds leading up to this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of big efforts. Yeah. Plus a few other bonus races, of course. Um, two more, both also really big efforts. Yeah. Um, what are you feeling? Are you are you like hanging on for dear life or excited to finish strong and curious about the last two rounds? How's that? Um, all of those. <laughs> <laughs> That's Is a that fair an answer. option? <laughs> I I'm definitely feeling a little bit hanging on for dear life. Um, mostly just a little fatigue is kind of setting in. Um, but then again, it's like I'm trying to like trick my brain into yeah, like let's go get it, let's finish strong. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely like, a, you know, the rad is a new one for me. I've never done it. It's close to home. It's at elevation. Um, I think it'll be very similar to steamboat gravel. And so I'm, I'm have some curiosity around that. Um, I'm also curious, like, you know, having the experience from last year and how, knowing how it feels to be at, you know, month eight <laughs> at the end of the Crazy. season and, uh, go into that and knowing how it feels. And so hopefully that'll, you know, that curiosity will stick around and we can have a good last two races, mm-hmm. three races, I guess. Derby. We're counting Derby. <laughs> derby. Cool. Yeah. Fair so, enough. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Ellen. We'll yeah. check in post Rad Dirt Fest in two weeks, week and a half. Oh, golly. <laughs> Here we go. Chat then. All right. Let's do a little power file analysis. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit of a shorter version as compared to uh, our past recap episode file analysis segments. Uh, that's in part because this race is shorter, but also uh, it, there's just kind of less going on. It's a pretty classic flatter mountain bike race power file, um, both for the women's file and the men's file we're going to look at. Um, it's just sort of two hours, two and a half hours on the gas. Um, plenty of ups and downs, plenty of twists and turns. So pretty staccato. Uh, I think one thing that's interesting to note is that power files from off-road races, especially mountain bike races look so different than power files from road races or even mini gravel races. Um, in road races, oftentimes you just see, you know, big lulls in the action and then just flat out 10, 15, 20, 30 plus minute efforts that are, they almost look like sometimes riders are, are pacing for an interval. You, you can uh, get a very good picture of how the race played out oftentimes just by looking at a uh, road power file. When it's off-road, it's just kind of all over the place. You've got big spiky surges everywhere. Um, and then also, at least here in the States, a lot of times our gravel races are raced so aggressively from early on that um, 
the power files and the efforts themselves just kind of mimic marathon mountain bike races in, in some regards. So anyway, for that's what, for what's that is worth. Um, we're going to look at Hannah Otto's power file, um, and then kind of a hybrid of Keegan's power file and Alexi's power file. Um, I wanted to just look at Alexi's, but it looks like, uh, he might have his start and end hidden those, uh, that settings on Strava. So, his power file cuts out with like half a mile to go in the race, which was the part that I was most interested in, but um, we'll supplement with Keegan's file. But first Hannah's um, her total race duration was two hours, 27 minutes. She had a, an average power of two Oh eight and a normalized of two thirty one. That right there is uh, something to note right off the bat, just that the normalized power was a pretty significant percentage higher than the average power for this one, which it's not too surprising with a flattish sea level, shorter race that often has packed dynamics, the normalized power and the average power are going to be a little bit further apart than as compared to, um, say a longer, longer distance gravel race. Um, and that's just because the, the staccato nature of, of riding in a group and the attacks and surges up hills and all that sort of thing. Uh, one thing about this Schwamigan course, uh, it's also we should also note that the pro men's and women's first few miles are different than uh, all the thousands of amateurs race. And our opening section on the Berkey rollers is really grippy. And but I don't mean traction wise. Uh, it's just like um, hard, regardless of <laughs> whether you're you're trying to make it hard or not. Steep rollers deep grass, just kind of slow. You're just sort of earning every pedal stroke. And you see that in Hannah's file, actually. She had an average of 225 for the opening 20 minutes and a normalized of 250. And in classic mountain bike fashion, this race just starts fast, starts hard from the gun. Hannah had, for the first three minutes and 15 seconds, 280 average with a peak power of 600 um, so that's a, that's a spicy start. Riders were absolutely doing very thorough warm ups for this one. Um, in large part because of that start and also because it's just a shorter duration race. Another key component of the Schwamigan race is the fire tower Hill. This is the longest climb in the race. Uh, most selective. I believe this is where Alexis Scarta and Ruth Winder got away. Um, Ruth, hides her power and Alexis has uh, a private Strava account. So I couldn't see either of their power files, but for Hannah, this was a three minute and 13 second effort with an average power of 280, which is for Hannah 5.1 Watts per kilogram, um, which is a big, big effort right in the middle of a two hour race, obviously. And keep in mind that I'm pretty sure this is where Ruth and Alexis got away. So they did even bigger numbers up fire tower. But something else to keep in keep in mind is that positioning going into Fire Tower is super super key. So if we look at the section right before Fire Tower, unfortunately for the riders, you don't just get to spin the legs and rest up and then sprint up Fire Tower. You are fighting for position. So Hannah had two forty average for two minutes, just leading in to Fire Tower. Um, so you put those two together. Let's expand this a little bit. And it was actually a 200 and almost 270 watt effort for five minutes. Um, so that just sort of 
gives a little window into how key positioning is in this race. Um, these riders were doing almost as big an effort in the couple of minutes leading into fire tower as actually going up the fire tower climb. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that you get such high average power for, for this race as a whole. Let's fast forward and look at how the final played out for this. So Hannah was in kind of the, the main chase group and they had a big sprint. Um, I think four or five riders at least. And you can see that they were still committed to trying to catch, um, from what I can tell, I didn't talk to them about this, but just looking at the power file, it seems like they were still pretty darn committed to uh, trying to catch Ruth and Alexis because the final 33 minutes of this race, Hannah still had an average power of almost 210 watts, 208 average, 225 normalized. Um, So you can see that this was just a full gas race from wire to wire. And then, of course, the sprint finish. Um, we'll see this in the men's file too. It was sort of a weird sprint because it was such a long grass boulevard, so wide, kind of gradual up and then gradual down. And so it was just sort of less so a sprint and more of just a long drag race. So you can actually see that in Hannah's file as well. She hits 620 watts, which uh, in a normal sprint I think Hannah would certainly be hitting a higher number than that, but it was just kind of a long, slow burn. So for two and a half minutes, she had once again, almost 260 average. Um, and there's just sort of these mini surges within that 618, 380, 365, 550, 605. So she went over 600 Watts multiple times. Um, just sort of like a, a dogfight to the line, not a traditional sprint. Um, okay, so that is the uh, a peek into the women's um, race dynamics and power file. I think I already said this at the top, for, but for the entire 237 of the race, Hannah had a normalized power of 231 and an average of 208. Good job, Hannah. Hello, Watts. And for those uh, curious, this is a, a like a UCI Pro watts per kilo effort almost four watts per kilo for two hours and 40 minutes um certainly gives you a uci pro badge with the sauce app on strava okay on to the men's file so like i said i was really hoping to get a peek uh at alexi's full file because the sprint was really unique um but the the end of his file got cut off so Let's look at Keegan's file predominantly here. Um, 318 average for two hours and three minutes with a normalized of 364. <laughs> Large. Um, let's move forward to Fire Tower. I'd like to do kind of a comparison again, like we did for the women's of the Fire Tower effort itself but also the the battle for position leading into it. So Fire Tower itself for Keegan saw 498 watts for 2 minutes and 20 seconds. That's 7.6 watts per kilo. But again, if we extend that effort a little bit, or rather look at the the twisty dirt road section, it, it actually tightened down. So Fire Tower itself is very tight. There's really only two lines. 
but the dirt road leading into it is not that much wider either. And there's kind of limbs, uh, leaning into the road, big puddles, rocks. So it's not a clean, you know, battleground to, to position yourself. You're doing a lot of ducking and weaving. So along that road, before we even made the left-hand turn, uh, onto fire tower Hill, Keegan did 418 Watts for a minute 45. And then for fire tower proper, like I said, uh, 498, I think I is what I said. Now, if we combine those two efforts, we're looking at 440 for 440. How's that for some symmetry? Um, big effort, big, big effort. And that's just in the middle of a whole other, you know, hour of battling for position. And then another hour following this battling for position. So again, let's, let's look at that first hour. Let's just put together kind of a, around 60 minutes. 106 is what the, looks like the race ended up being before fire tower. 325 average. So imagine doing 325 watts average. 360 normalized for a little over an hour. And then you have to go do 440 watts for almost five minutes. But that's not the end. (laughs) Then you keep battling for an additional 47 minutes at an average of 303, a normalized of 347. And then somehow gather your thoughts and try to time a sprint correctly, which was really where this race decided. Because there were 14 of us that stayed together for this entire race couldn't get no one could get any separation and things opened up into that big uh grassy boulevard sprint like i was describing uh in hannah's file now one thing that's interesting to me here is it looks like and i don't remember this from the sprint but it looks like keegan tried to go pretty early because he has a huge old spike on the beginning of his final effort here so his final sprint was 42 seconds long 42 seconds at 750 watts but the first 12 seconds of that effort was 977 watts with a peak power of 1,198, basically 1,200 watts. So basically a 750-watt effort for 45 seconds, but front-loaded, the first third of that is 1,000 watts. (laughs) Uh, Really big. And I think it's interesting that he went early because I know, I don't know, but if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that Alexi kind of played it cool and then just put in this big surge to get ahead right as we crested the hill. And then once over the crest of that hill, most of us got kind of geared out. And you can see that in Keegan's file also, not looking at um, power this time, but speed actually. 36 miles an hour, which is getting, you know, for for folks that are running a 36 or even a 38 tooth chain ring, dangerously close to running out of gears. Um, I certainly felt like I was running out of gears. Keegan had a 40 tooth chain ring and was still spinning 113 RPMs um, at the end of this sprint. So although I can't look at Alexi's uh, actual file right at the finish line, like I said earlier in this episode, I kind of gave him a punch in the shoulder. and I was like, you bastard. Stoked for him, of course, but also just knowing that he really had kind of schooled us with the timing of that sprint. And to reinforce that he had indeed schooled us, he took his bike computer off his handlebars and showed it to me. And his peak power was 1,075 watts. The fact that he won that sprint barely breaking 1,000 watts is amazing. And also, it it goes to further reinforce that it was a really, really long sprint. So even though a little over 1,000 watts, you know, isn't a very big peak power, my guess is if we looked at his file, he was probably around 1,000 watts uh, for 
15 seconds or more, just like Keegan was. Um, and just the nature of the, the downhill sprint made it so that at a certain point you can't put out any more power. And that was really his clever move was, uh, winning the sprint to the top of that rise rather than focusing on the finish line. All right. That's what I got. Thank you all for listening to today's power file analysis segment. If you'd like to hear other details, if you have ideas of different specifics you'd like us to dig into for the Trinidad recap, send us an email and we'll give it a shot. All right. Thank you all so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that Schwamigan recap. We will have another Grand Prix recap episode uh, following Trinidad week after next. Um, I want to say a big, big thank you to Epic Rides for supporting today's episode. Just in case you've been completely living under a rock, I want to tell you about 24 Hours in the Old Pueblo, presented by Tucson Medical Center, the registration of which opens Sunday, October 1st at 6 a.m. FYI, registration usually sells out in an hour or less, so I highly recommend you setting your alarms. What's all the fuss about? Well, for one, it's an awesome course. Sonoran Single Track Sensation is its nickname. 16 plus mile loop, 1,200 feet of climbing. It's very rider friendly, although I will warn you, it is cactus lined. So the faster you go, the more technical it does become. The venue, sometimes known as 24 Hour Town, is home to 4,000 people for three plus days. Completely remote, 100% camping based, and it lends itself to a one of a kind experience. Epic Rides was once accused by the media just to characterize this, um, as throwing a party that happened to have a mountain bike race nearby. Um, that's kind of the vibe. It's almost like a burning man of mountain biking. It's on my bucket list, and I certainly think it should be on yours as well. If I were going to be in town, I would be there. One of these years, I will be in town, and I will be there. But go for me this year. EpicRides.com for more information. Once again, 6 a.m. registration opens Sunday, October 1st, and it will sell out fast. I also want to say thank you to Lifetime Events for supporting today's episode. Uh, lots of great events in their massive portfolio at this point. And you can find out more at my.lifetime.life slash athletic dash events. And thanks to them for making these recap episodes possible. They are expensive. Betsy puts effort into these. Ellen puts effort into these. And yes, I pay them for their efforts as should be the case. Um, and I'm able to do that because of Lifetime support. So thanks to them. Lastly, uh, for those of y'all that follow us on Instagram, the Adventure Stash, uh, you can win yourself a pair of socks during our weekly quizzes. Three questions posted to our stories, two pertaining to that week's episode, a third kind of wild card one pertaining to an episode in the recent past, could be any in the recent past. Answer all three quiz questions correctly and you'll be entered to win a pair of, say they're kind of lavender socks from Sock Guy. Very comfortable. Um, they have the Stash House Productions black and white mustache logo on them, as well as a quote that I appreciate. If not now, when? I referenced that during Lachlan's uh, interview last week. Maybe a little bit cheesy, maybe a little bit corny, but hey, when you pull your socks on in the morning, sometimes you need a little added inspo. Thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing the show each and every week. Thank you all for listening each and every week. Uh, if you have ideas for us, as always, send an email to theadventurestash at paceandmckelvin.com. Until then, we will catch you next week. <laughs>